Mark chapter 10, verses uh, 1 through 12 is our text today. A sermon that I've titled, Missing the Meaning of Marriage, or the Meaning of Marriage, Something About Marriage and Its Meaning Will Do Fine. In 1997, Glenn Wolfe died in a convalescent home in Southern California. Now, you probably don't know Glenn Wolfe by name. His name probably doesn't uh, jump to your memory, but Glenn Wolfe is a world record holder. From 1931 to 1996, Wolfe attended 29 weddings as the groom. Glenn Wolfe was the world's most married man. On his death, the Los Angeles Times took to writing an article about his very unique life. Uh, you, can, you can find it online fairly easily. It's a really interesting article. And in it, the author writes this, Glenn Scotty Wolf did one thing in life, and he did it often. He married. In his 89 years, he married 29 times, setting the world record for monogamous unions. He married some women for years, others for months, a few for days, and he loved, honored, and cherished each one in his own odd way. His biographer continues, marriage was Glenn's life's work, his mission, his lasting monument. But when he died penniless last month at a Redlands nursing home, the body with the symbolic forearm tattoo of a tied knot went unclaimed. The man whose family tree sent branches and sub-branches in every direction, the man who married more often than Zsa Zsa Gabor, Elizabeth Taylor, and Henry VIII combined, the man who made 29 different till death do us part promises, was singularly alone at the end. The whole of Wolf's life, if you read the entire article, is anything but happily ever after. In reality, Wolf's life's work wasn't marriage. His life's work was divorce. And his life's work left a legacy of pain and brokenness, abandonment and heartache. You read the whole story of his life that's posted there on the LA Times, and it is heartbreaking. Wolf's life is a cautionary tale in the extreme about the dangers of misunderstanding and mistreating marriage and the rippling effects of misusing and abusing marriage. In Mark chapter 10, and some of you have already found your way in your Bibles and you've seen the subheading above Mark chapter 10, which may say something like teaching about divorce. You already know where we're headed this morning. In Mark chapter 10, when Jesus is asked a loaded question by a group of Pharisees about the legality of divorce, Jesus plainly and directly teaches them that marriage, not divorce, but marriage was God's design from the beginning. And that every divorce is ultimately the result of hard-heartedness And every divorce is itself sin. The main idea of this passage, as we'll study it this morning, and it's not an easy one, is that what we know about the meaning of marriage speaks volumes about what we know about God. What we know, what we think about what marriage means says a lot about what we think, about what we know, about who God is. What I hope that we can leave this passage with today is first, faith in Christ, that leads us to obedience, even when it's especially hard. Second, I hope that we walk away with a better understanding of what marriage is and what marriage communicates. And third, I hope that we would respond to God's good word with appropriate repentance from sin and hope in Christ who gave his life as a ransom for sinners. So would you stand with me as we honor God while reading his word? Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. 
in his biography of Jesus, Mark, the gospel writer, says that Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word, and it's good. You may be seated. Now, before we go any further in this text, I recognize that this passage hits home and maybe cuts a little bit deeply for nearly all of us in this room in some way or another. The statistic seems to hold fast year after year that 50% or more of marriages in our nation end in divorce. And that's only first marriages. Second and third marriages fail at an even higher rate. And that being the case, I cannot imagine that there's a person in this room that has not been affected by divorce in some way. I'm aware of this. I, I, I'm aware of reality. And I want to be sensitive and pastoral this morning to the many and varied lives and many and varied situations uh, of lives that are in this room and the way that this text impacts them. At the same time, the easy part of my job as a preacher is also the hardest part of my job as a preacher. The easy part is opening God's Word and letting it set the agenda for my preaching. It's why we preach through whole books of the Bible. What God has said in His Word is really all that I get to say from the pulpit with some added application of how God's Word intersects our lives today. And now you know why the easy part of preaching is the hard part. Because sometimes saying what God has said, like in Mark chapter 10, is not an easy thing to do. So I pray that this morning we will listen together to God's good Word, because it is good, and strive to hear His voice and to see our world and to see our lives the way that He does and then together to look to Jesus for healing and hope and grace to walk in repentance and faith. Amen. This passage about the meaning of marriage opens with an insincere question about a serious issue. An insincere question about a serious issue. As Jesus moves on from Capernaum, which was kind of his home base uh, on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he taught the disciples there about discipleship and the call to discipleship in chapter 9. He now moves to Judea and the area east of the Jordan River, and he's there approached by a group of Pharisees. We've seen these guys a lot in Mark's gospel. These Jewish experts in the Jewish law who have been in conflict with Jesus over issues of the law come to him again with another question. Their question to Jesus is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Mark, the gospel writer, tells us that their question is not sincere. They ask it in order to test him. They aren't looking for Jesus to teach them anything. They're trying to trap him. Already they know that what Jesus has been teaching has been considered somewhat radical in comparison to what they had been teaching as, uh, as experts in the law. 
They know, too, that they're now in Herod's territory in Judea beyond the Jordan. The same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded because John the Baptist confronted Herod about his adulterous and incestuous relationship or marriage, rather, to his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. The Pharisees are cunning. These are smart guys. They don't like Jesus. But they know that Jesus is aligned with the now deceased John, the baptizer. And so maybe if they can get Jesus to say something really radical about divorce in Herod's territory, like John did, well, then maybe Herod will take care of their Jesus problem for them. In verse 3, we get to see the genius of Jesus again in the questions that he asks. Have you ever been reading the Gospels and someone comes to Jesus with a question and he answers their question with another question and you go, wow, I never would have thought to ask that. He does the same thing here. Knowing that the Pharisees who have come to him are experts in the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Knowing that the Pharisees are experts in all that God has said there, Jesus asks them, what did Moses command? You're asking a legal question. What does the law say, guys? And they respond with what is essentially a summary of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, which say this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. The Pharisees are basing their response. Moses said we could allow a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's a summary of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Now, in the day of Jesus and in the day of these Pharisees and this interaction between the two, there were two prevailing schools of thought uh, and tradition that held sway on the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 and what it meant. One school of thought, a conservative school of thought, following the, the teaching tradition of a rabbi by the name of Shammai, who lived from about 50 B.C. to 30 A.D., Shammai, uh, being a more conservative Jewish rabbi, saw that phrase in Deuteronomy 24, anything indecent. If her husband, if she doesn't find any favor in her husband's eyes because he finds something indecent in her, that that phrase, anything indecent, was pertaining mostly to adultery, Shammai said, to a woman having a sexual relationship with a man other than her husband. That's when a man could divorce his wife if she committed adultery. Another rabbi, a more liberal rabbi by the name of Hillel, who died somewhere uh, around the year 10 AD or so, was a little more lenient in his interpretation of anything indecent. Not a little more lenient, he was a lot more lenient. Hillel held to the idea that that phrase, anything indecent, could mean anything literally displeasing to the husband, even as simple or mundane as burning his breakfast. Now the real kicker, is that for all of their political and theological conservatism on so many other issues, the Pharisees who are asking Jesus this question were more influenced by the liberal Hillel, even if she burns your breakfast view. Their conservatism was not always a conservatism of conviction, but often was a conservatism of convenience. And when being conservative wasn't convenient, they were more than happy to be liberal it's interesting to note that 
Jesus asks them, what did Moses command you? And they respond with what Moses permitted or allowed them to do. Being commanded to do something and being permitted to do something are two very different things. Deuteronomy 24 is interesting because it assumes that divorces are already happening among the people of Israel. It's not instruction for how to divorce. It's a regulation on what happens when divorce takes place. God, rather than commanding His people to divorce, is regulating a practice that was already happening in order to protect the vulnerable women that were on the other side of being divorced, who were being divorced. With a certificate of divorce in her hand, a Jewish woman could go and marry again without being charged of cheating on her first husband. She had a certificate to validate, a piece of paper to validate that he had sent her away. And more, if her second husband divorced her too, the first husband couldn't go and marry her again. That may not seem obvious, but this is to protect vulnerable and maybe unrighteously divorced women among the people of Israel from becoming passed around playthings of sexually bored men. In fact, in Jewish law, only husbands could divorce their wives, and wives had no grounds to divorce their husbands. They could petition the town elders to have their husbands write a certificate of divorce for them, but the wives could not give their husband a certificate of divorce. So the whole provision in Deuteronomy 24 from God to his people is to protect otherwise vulnerable women who may be unjustly sent away by their husbands. And yet it was this provision for divorce in Deuteronomy that the Pharisees had now taken as a license for divorce. And in turn, they had taken this serious issue of dissolving marriage and made it something rather mundane. She burned my breakfast. I'm done. I'm going to find me a better cook. They made the very sad exception out to be the very calloused norm. And now they intend to trap Jesus as they presume that he'll defy the law of Moses by saying something radical like, no, there is no law relating to divorce. In response to their heartless question, their insincere question about a serious issue, Jesus gives in verses 6 through 12 a hard saying about a serious commitment. In verse 5, Jesus explains that the Pharisees have misunderstood the regulation of divorce all along. Deuteronomy 24 isn't there because Israel was so godly. It was there because they were hard-hearted. Divorce was already happening in Israel apart from God's permission or provision for vulnerable women. And the regulation about divorce comes in Deuteronomy 24 in order to provide a protective boundary for divorced women. A provision like this is not a law in the sense that it is a command. God is not commanding people to divorce. He never commands His people to divorce their wives. But He does strongly regulate the way that they do it out of a generous provision for vulnerable women. Jesus is giving these Pharisees, who are experts in the law, no legal wiggle room to justify their practice of divorcing. Then in verse 6, Jesus does something really interesting. Rather than talking about divorce, Jesus shifts the conversation to talk about marriage. You see, it was the same Moses that recorded Deuteronomy, who also wrote Genesis. All of Genesis through Deuteronomy was considered the law or instruction in Hebrew, Torah. And the Pharisees were experts in Torah. So Jesus says, great, guys, while you've got your Bibles open to Deuteronomy 24, turn back a few pages. In fact, go all the way back to page 1, Genesis 1. Go to the beginning. And in the beginning, Jesus says, this practice of divorce was not a part of the picture. 
And to make his argument, he goes all the way to the very beginning of everything. He says, from the first, and here he quotes Genesis 1.27, from the first, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Jesus turns to page 2, Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25, and quotes, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And he adds his own commentary to that, saying, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. There are three things to note in Jesus' response uh, about about marriage or his response to this question about divorce uh, that, that we ought to note. First of all, we see that, as Jesus teaches, that gender precedes and is foundational for marriage. Gender precedes and is foundational for marriage. When God made mankind, Jesus says, He made them gendered. He made them male and female. Written into our genetic code is God's good design for us. Friends, the gender of your body is not a mistake. It's not an accident, and neither is it a thing to be defined by you. It's a gift of God. Now, to be sure, masculinity and femininity are expressed in lots of different ways in different cultures, but it's not up to us to to determine whether we are male or female. It's written in our bodies by God's good handiwork. Now, at the same time, we ought to be compassionate, and I want to be caring toward those who may struggle with things like gender dysphoria or feeling like the gender gender of their body doesn't match who they, they are. Now, I've never felt those things myself. But I can imagine for those who do, it must be extremely difficult to not feel at home in your body. Extremely difficult to feel like something's not right. Even if you know things are right, to feel like something's not right, it's just, man, there's nothing closer to who we are as a person than the body that we're in. So to feel not at home in your body, irrespective of the fact that the body you're in is the right body to be in, has got to be a difficult struggle. But friends, you were not born in your body by mistake. Your gender's not an accident. It's given to you by God in all of His wisdom and provision. With all of its joys and all of its challenges, He has made you a man or a woman, male or a female. And hear me, to be a man has its joys and it has its challenges. And to be a woman has its joys and has its challenges. But God has given to us the bodies with genders that we were born in in order to glorify Him with. Jesus says in the beginning, God made them male and female. Another pastor, Matt Smethurst, asks the obvious question at this point. If Jesus is going to argue about what marriage is, why not just skip Genesis 1.27? In the beginning, he made them male and female. Just go straight to Genesis 2, where where God talks about marriage. Just go to the first marriage. Why do you start with gender? Surely there were not issues quite like those that we face today surrounding gender and marriage and sexuality. But Matt Smethurst offers a reason that perhaps Jesus, in knowing what his church and his people would face in the 21st century, that he starts in Genesis 1.27 for our benefit, that we would remember that gender proceeds and is foundational for marriage. Simultaneously, Jesus is reminding these Pharisees of the equality of the genders at creation. God made them male and female. Not male over female, not female over male, but male and female. Different, yes, in glorious and complementary ways, but also equal in their status as humans, as image bearers of God. Men image the, the, uh, are image bearers of God the same way that women are image bearers of God and vice versa. They are to be men and women in God's image as Peter writes to husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7, that, that women are heirs with you, husbands, of the grace of life. 
Here, Jesus is, in reminding the Pharisees that God made them male and female, he's elevating the status of women to their rightful place. Not as property, but as people. Not as playthings, but as persons. Equals in dignity and worth and partners in bringing glory to God. Why does he elevate, re, uh, elevate rightly the status of women for these Pharisees? Because in their taking license for divorce, they had made women property. They had made their wives things to be acquired and dismissed at their own pleasure. Jesus says, no way. You can't do that to image bearers of God. Gender proceeds and is foundational for marriage. Second, Jesus teaches us in his short response to the Pharisees that marriage, when a man and a woman come together, results in something new. Jesus reminds the Pharisees of what happens in marriage. Verse 7, he says, therefore. Therefore is a result word. Because God has made them male and female. Therefore, as a result, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Marriage results in something new. A wedding takes one man and one woman, one of each member of the two genders from separate families, and makes them a new entity. There is a welding, there is a melding of their lives such that the two together become something new. No longer Brad and Angelina, but Brangelina. <laughs> no longer Ben and Jennifer, but Benifer. No longer Stephen and Nikki, but Sticky. <laughs> and the, the sexual relationship that results in marriage the sexual relationship that a husband and wife have is not just a fun perk of marriage, but it's a physical manifestation and demonstration of their one fleshness. It's like melting two different colored crayons and swirling their wax together such that when it solidifies, you can see green and yellow distinctly, but never can you tear the two apart from each other again. There's something new. So gender proceeds and is foundational for marriage, Jesus teaches. Marriage results in something new. The two become one flesh. And third, we see that marriage is ultimately administered not by people, but by God. Amen. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage, Jesus says, is not something that the state came up with. It was God's idea. It was his invention. Again, Matt Smethers says, God owns the patent on marriage. It was his grand masterpiece, and therefore, we have no right to define what he has done on our own terms. We have no right to steal his patent and rejigger it for our own purposes. When a marriage happens, when a man and a woman make promises to love and cherish one another, till death do they part, they are making promises that God has ordained for them. And because it was God's invention, because it's his masterpiece, because marriage is his ordained and inspired institution, we have every obligation to exercise it rightly and no right to redefine or to diminish its importance. Furthermore, since it's God who makes the two one, as Jesus says, and not the county clerk, not a judge, not a pastor, then no human person has the authority or the capacity to properly and hermetically separate and disentangle the two. This is why we understand marriage to be the covenant union between one man and one woman for every day that they are both living. After all this, the Pharisees, the end of verse 9, they don't say anything to Jesus. The silence from the Pharisees is deafening. 
And neither does Jesus say anything to them. And you understand why, right? As Jesus has explained their own law to them better than they thought that they had explained it to themselves. There's no retort that they can give to what Jesus has said. He has bested them at their own game, but worst of all, he was right. The Pharisees have nothing more to ask about divorce. And Jesus has nothing more to say to the Pharisees about it. But the disciples do have a question. In verse 10, they ask Jesus their questions based on the conversation that he had with the Pharisees before. Now, Mark doesn't tell us precisely what the disciples ask, but we can infer their question from Jesus' response to them. Their question was probably something like, okay, Jesus, but what about when divorce does happen and then there's a remarriage? Okay, we get it that marriage is God's design and what, what God has joined together, man should not separate. We got it, but there are situations, and we know some of them, Jesus, where there has been a divorce and then those people have remarried. What, what do we do then? And Jesus has a hard answer to that question too. And it's only hard because it hits close to home for so many, I think. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And vice versa, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. The first half of the statement is hard for Jesus' Jewish disciples. Because remember, uh, according to their understanding of Jewish law, only women could could commit adultery by sleeping with a man, not their husband. It's weird, but it's how they understood it. But Jesus says something radical in that men who divorce their wives and marry another woman are defiling their marriage... Uh, their marriage bed, and committing adultery against their first wife. And then he doubles down on the equality of women in dignity and worth before God and the equality of women in responsibility for their own sin before God by saying the same about them. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So here again is the easy and very, very, very hard part of my job to say what God has said. And so I'll aim to say it plainly. As Jesus makes clear, divorce and remarriage is adultery. It's sinful. That's a hard thing to say to a room full of people affected by divorce. It's a hard thing to say, but Jesus said it. And there are places in God's Word where Jesus is being intentionally hyperbolic. He's exaggerating on purpose to, like we just saw in the passage before, right? If your hand, if your foot, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, tear it out. There we know Jesus is being hyperbolic. He's not commanding people to mutilate their bodies. But in this passage, he's not being hyperbolic. He's being straight. He's being straight with his disciples. He's being straight with these Pharisees. Divorce and remarriage is adultery. It is sinful. But let's understand why Jesus says it, because he's not saying this arbitrarily. He's not saying this flippantly. He's not saying this just to be a jerk and to make people mad. Already, Jesus has established that marriage, from God's word, Marriage takes two independent souls and binds them together as a new entity. And that entity, this one flesh union of a man and a woman, has God's own hand of blessing and ordination on it. The one fleshness of marriage is real and God-ordained. And it cannot be easily separated or neatly separated. It wasn't meant to be. It was meant to be permanent. When we engage in divorce... We are walking away from God's design for marriage. 
irrespective of the many situations and the many conditions that may have preceded a divorce, unwelding a couple is just not totally possible. Their lives are too intertwined. Like two plants that have grown up together in one pot, their roots are all a tangled, jumbled up mess. And even if you're able to disentangle the roots of these two plants, it's going to come with some damage. And even the plants that remain will have the shape of having grown up against and with the other. Even having a certificate of divorce does not undo the unification of marriage. The vows that were made till death do us part are not summarily unwoven at divorce. Those vows are violently abrogated. Divorce is a betrayal of an oath ratified by God. And that's why Jesus rightly calls divorce and remarriage adultery. And it's why I'm obligated by God's Word to call all divorce sin. It's missing the mark of God's design for marriage. This is a hard word about a serious commitment. But it's not an arbitrary word. It has significance. Marriage has significance and a purpose. And it's not just marriage. It's not just about you being happy and fulfilled in a relationship. The meaning of marriage is far deeper, far greater. So so what I want to do is, is zoom out from Mark 10 a little bit to look at some other parts of Scripture to understand what the meaning of marriage is so we can better understand why Jesus has this hard word for people who are treating divorce like it's no big deal. This hard, true word about divorce and remarriage is so stark and made to you feel so harsh because of what God has always meant marriage to be about. It may surprise you, but marriage is not ultimately about you. It's not about your wife. It's not about your husband. It's about God. And marriage is about how God relates to His people. It's about Jesus and how Jesus relates to His church. In a number of places in the Old Testament, we don't have enough time to survey them all, but in a number of places of the Old Testament, God refers to His covenant people, Israel, as His bride, His wife. Often it's in negative terms, as He's referring to them as a bride who has been unfaithful and engaged in prostitution with other gods. But God, using the life of the prophet Hosea, particularly Hosea chapters 1 through 3, demonstrates what kind of husband He is to His adulterous people. He's a husband who marries a woman inclined to prostitution and then keeps on pursuing her, wooing her, buying her back, and calling her back to his home and to his care. Marriage between a man and a woman mirrors the covenant commitment that God has to his people. God decries divorce in Malachi chapter 2 because divorce paints the wrong picture of his covenant love for his people. But even more starkly in the New Testament, Paul writes in Ephesians 5 about the way that wives and husbands are to relate to each other, especially Christian ones. He says, and listen, just listen to the words of, uh, of God from Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus saying, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. And then Paul quotes from Genesis 
too, the same way Jesus did, saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says this mystery of marriage, this one flesh union of marriage is profound, but I'm telling you that marriage is about Jesus and his church. Marriage, you see, is about the gospel. It's about the way that God is committed to his people and about the way that Jesus is committed to his bride, the church. He doesn't treat her as his plaything, but he gives his life to redeem her. He doesn't cavort with other ladies, but he nourishes and cherishes his bride. And Christian marriages are meant to be living illustrations of the kind of selfless and holy committed covenant bond that Jesus has with his people. And it's to be a reminder. Marriage is to be a reminder, especially in the way that husbands love their wives, of the way that Jesus has loved us. The meaning of marriage is about the gospel. Jesus loved us by giving his life for our sins to make us holy and to present us as justified to God, our creator. He loved his bride by dying for her. And when he could have taken the easy way out and called for a legion of angels to rescue him from the cross so he wouldn't have to suffer, he didn't. But he continued even to death to make payment for our sin in full. And because Scripture says that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us, we know that He will never divorce His bride. So sure is this promise that the last scene we have in the book of Revelation is, is the one of the wedding supper of the Lamb where Christ is united to all His people for all time and forevermore. Jesus has a hard word about marriage because marriage means something. Marriage illustrates something of infinite importance, the commitment of God, the commitment of Christ to his people. And the way that we treat marriage says a lot about what we think about God. The way we, we, what we believe about marriage says a lot about what we believe about God and his people. And if we treat divorce as though it's something easy and simple and pain-free and has no lasting implication, then what we're saying is that it's no big deal if God were to divorce himself from us. Jesus is hard and, and stern with the Pharisees because they've perverted the meaning of marriage. They've made it into a thing to be used for their own pleasure. And Jesus says, that's not how God treats his people. That's not how you treat your wives. So having heard this hard word about a serious issue, and reviewing the meaning of marriage from throughout Scripture, I want to give just some brief application because this text hits probably all of us in every stage of life in one way or another. Some brief application for us from God's Word. First of all, I want to address those who have been divorced, divorcees, because you're probably the ones who feel this like smacking you right in the face most of all today. I want to say what Jesus has already made clear. Divorce is sin. I, I, I can't soften it. And if I did soften it, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing right by God's word and his, his intention for marriage. So just say it plainly. Divorce is sin. But Jesus makes equally clear throughout Mark's gospel and Matthew's and Luke's and John's and the rest of the New Testament, it's made explicitly clear that Jesus came to save sinners. Divorce is sin, but Jesus came to save sinners. Now, this passage may have 
been preached to you before in your life so as to bludgeon you with guilt because you've been divorced. And that's not my intention today. And that's not Christ's intent either. Rather, this passage tells us why divorce hurts so much. This passage reveals to us why divorce feels so wrong and why divorce is so hard to heal from. Because it's about more than just my relationship or your relationship to your husband or to your wife. It's a picture of the gospel. Friend, if you've been divorced, I want you to know today for certain that there is grace and forgiveness in Christ for every sin, including divorce. Some of you may have had this passage preached to you as though divorce were the unforgivable sin. It's not. There is grace for you in Jesus. There's healing for you in Jesus. There's hope for you in Jesus if you've been divorced. So knowing that divorce is sin, I encourage you today to confess that sin to him. Seek his grace. And then find rest for your soul in him today because he doesn't deny any who come to him this way. Secondly, singles. If you long to be married but you aren't married yet, do not rush into an impulsive union. If you're not married and you desperately want to be, do not marry the next thing with a pulse that has some interest in you. Listen, if God's intended best for you is for you to be married and you trust him and his good will for your life, then he can also be trusted to provide a spouse for you in his good timing. Do not rush into an impulsive union. Single women, I encourage you to take the meaning of marriage seriously as Jesus illustrates it with all of the weight that Jesus gives to marriage and entrust your singleness to Christ who is better and more faithful to you than any husband. Single men, you do the same. Looking to Christ as the whole man who was never married, and showed us a pattern for godly singleness. Single men who want to be married desperately, entrust your singleness to God until he provides you a godly wife. He can be trusted. Don't rush into something. Married couples. Those of you who read Mark 10, 1 through 12, and you think, my relationship to my wife is great. My relationship to my husband is awesome. This doesn't apply to me at all. Good! It does apply to you, though, in this sense, that, that we who are married and gladly so and blessed by God to be so ought to, we must, fight hard for the purity and the sanctity of our marriages. Every, on our good days and on our bad days, fight hard for the purity and sanctity of our marriage. A wedding is a declaration of the gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus does, uniting himself permanently and irrevocably to his people that he died to redeem. And because a wedding, a wedding is a declaration of the gospel, you can count married couples on Satan's best efforts to thwart that gospel, mer- that, that gospel message. So if you're married, and happily so, determine today never to even enter- to entertain divorce as an option. Determine today never to entertain divorce as an option. Let the D word never, never appear in an argument with your husband or wife. Strike it, from, strike it from the record. Remove it from your vocabulary. Let it not even enter the picture. Because if you're fighting with your spouse, and you even jokingly or half-heartedly or just out of anger and not meaning it at all, offer divorce as an option. Even if you don't mean it, friends, it's still out there. And the specter of, of, of that threat looms large, even if you didn't mean it. So married couples, if, you used, if you've used divorce as, as an option in arguing... My encouragement to you is to, is to apologize profusely to your husband or to your wife with whom you've used it 
and then work every day and in every fight or argument that ensues, work all the more harder to ensure them that it's not an option. Fight for the purity and sanctity of your marriage because your marriage is about the gospel. It's painting a picture of how Jesus relates to his people. What about those that the disciples had a question about? What about for those who have been divorced and remarried? You, my friend, may be feeling this passage most heavy today. I I can't, I wish I could, but I can't soften Christ's words here about divorce and remarriage. I can't make it easier to stomach, I don't think. He says, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. But if you have been remarried, I do not think that you are continuing to commit adultery against your first spouse every day of your present marriage. Adultery may be a sin that was committed, but I don't think it's necessarily one that's being committed in an ongoing way. Rather, I encourage you, if you've been divorced and remarried, with every ounce of your being, commit this marriage you're presently in to all of God's care, that he might redeem what was broken And with your husband or your wife today, demonstrate all the glory and grace of the gospel in your union. Some of the most godly marriages I've ever seen in my life in our church were those that were the result of remarriage, of a divorce and a remarriage. I I don't know how I could hold over their heads that that just observing their life and, and their pattern of repentance from sin in an ongoing way, that they're living in some sort of ongoing sin. But I have to They took what was broken and in their present marriage are are seeking God's grace to redeem it and make it great. So if you've been divorced and you're remarried, entrust the marriage that you're in to all of God's care and glorify him and magnify the message of the gospel in the way that you now relate to your husband or your wife. What if you're asking a question about exceptions for divorce? You might be asking, is it ever okay to get a divorce? What if my spouse is cheating on me? What if my spouse is abusing me? What if my spouse has abandoned me? Is divorce okay then? In Matthew 19, Jesus does give an exception for divorce for adultery. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that desertion by an unbelieving spouse may be appropriate cause for divorce. But let's read these passages as what they are. These are provisions for divorce, not a license to divorce. If this is the case in your life, before you file any papers, would you please come talk with me or Pastor Danny about your situation? If you're being abused, let us help you get safe. Contact law enforcement. Let's help you walk through what comes next before you go to the courthouse and file papers for divorce. I want to say this plainly. I will never counsel a person or a couple to pursue a divorce as though it's God's good thing for them. It's not. It's not. So if you're coming to my office and you're asking me for permission to divorce your husband or your wife, I won't give it or my blessing on it. I can't because of what God says about marriage. But there are times where in a world that's broken by sin, divorce is sometimes the least worst option available. I'm not going to say it's good for you to do it, but it may be the least worst option available. And having said that, men, if you're abusing your wife, if you're abusing your wife, you are this morning, and I'm not afraid to say this, If you are abusing your wife, you are this morning under God's judgment, and you have so distorted the gospel of Christ in your marriage that you are in grave danger of proving you have never known Christ at all. Repent today. 
If you are abusing your wife, if you are abusing your children, repent today and seek God's mercy in Jesus. And then let us help you seek additional help to restore what in your anger you have broken. Understand this today. You will not find justification or tolerance for your sinful action in this place. Men, if you're abusing your wives, you will not find an A-OK or a high five from me. But you will find those in this place who will sternly but lovingly point you to the Savior you desperately need. What does this passage have to say to all of us who sin? Not just in relation to marriage or divorce, but all of us who sin. All of us who walk away from God's design for how we ought to live. Perhaps divorce isn't your problem today, but you do know that there are things in your life that are not right. Things in your life that need God's forgiveness. I hope that you've seen the gospel in this passage today. That God in His love has made a way to set you right with Himself through Jesus Christ. He gave his life to pay for our sins and he was raised from the dead to restore our relationship to God if you'll trust him. And his unending grace is open to you if you'll repent of your sin and place your faith in him. The commitment that Jesus makes to you when you trust him as Savior is till death do us part. And since death could not hold him, you have only the hope of his undying commitment to you. Dear sinner needing a Savior, Jesus is the one for you. He gave his life to redeem you, and he'll never leave you or forsake you. Now, church, I know that one sermon is not enough time to answer all the questions that we may have about this passage. Um, So I want to invite you, as you may be wrestling with what we've seen in God's Word today and maybe its implications for your life, would you let your pastors know? Would you let me and Pastor Danny know what's going on or your questions? Give us a call this week, shoot us an email, text, whatever. But let us in on your struggle so that we can pray for you, so that we can shepherd you with God's word. Uh, Let today, I pray, be the beginning of more hard but very good and sanctifying conversations between us. What we believe about marriage says a lot about what we believe about God. And the way that we treat our marriages says a lot about what we think about how Jesus treats his people. So let us Christians who have known the grace of Christ, the undying, unending love of Jesus for sinners, let's display that in our marriages. Let's pray together.